You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Maybe one of the definitions of postmodernism is when the seven-year itch is when you get married. Which I thought was was kind of interesting. Which sort of just, she just rolled right past that. And uh, and one thing we might talk about, we've got a lot of science fiction academics here, is uh, is, uh, I also thought it was sort of a variation on a little shop story. Do you know what a little shop story is? No. I mean, I I think I'd probably, but where there's a shop that has some magic. You go in a little shop yeah. and you find something weird. Yeah. Usually okay. you take I mean, I it. Read those. In yeah. the standard little shop story, you take it out and you take it home. Right. And something happens. Right. And, and yours, uh, all you get is the peach or the yeah, mango pit exactly. at the end. And, uh, um, well, I just, uh, you know, and Sean's uh, story, I don't know what to say about it. I. <laughs> I thought it was it was a couple of interesting things. One is Guam, which is Guantanamo, right? In that world. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting. I I felt like you were channeling Lyndon Johnson rather than George Bush. Was that intentional? Uh, in in the future world, there's another base on Guam, which is no. I mean the character, of the president. Oh yeah. <laughs> My. I come from Texas, so my badasses usually have a Johnsonian right. quality. <laughs> 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 All right. And then I just, I wonder, uh, just again for us science fiction academics, I'm wondering if Trent Reznor ever read um, Childhood's End. I don't know. My, my impression of meeting Trent Reznor is that he was certainly much more like one of us than he is like guys who are in rock bands. Like, he is so vividly, when you meet him, the kid who, when he was 14, had a Commodore 64 and was programming in BASIC and stuff, that he looks wildly out of place surrounded by session musicians. Um, jokingly, I'm sure, at one point he said, I just want to come work with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm not convinced, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if you'd read it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, just, to, just to open things up, I was going to ask Amy, uh, could you give us a little background as to how you get got into writing fiction and how you got into the mode of fiction that you're generally associated with, which I think is surrealist mm-hmm. fiction? Um, I was writing, I was living here actually, and I was writing, and I went to grad school back in Southern California at UC Irvine, and that's a whole story unto itself, but, but basically one of the things that happened there, and I think my writing had always been a little bit in this mode of surreal or the absurd or the magical or the bizarre or whatever, and it tends to be what I look for, there's something about, um, a skewed world that I just respond to more than the world as it seems on a day-to-day basis. So, but I felt like going to a master's program, I should be more realistic, more kind of standard realistic, which was not something I really knew how to do, but I just felt like, well, if I'm going to grad school, then that's what I should do. So I kind of went in with that notion, but my stories were short, so I would turn in two. And I would turn in basically one that was realistic that I was there to like wow the workshop with my realistic story. And then the second one was kind of what I liked to write, which tended to be more weird or more strange in some way. And then I turned those in fully expecting that they would embrace the realistic one and poo-poo the stranger one. And the opposite happened, which was really a shock to me. It was one of those moments where, you know, something happens that's kind of obvious, but you don't know it. And so then it's shocking to you, and then everything feels like these weights fall off your back or something. People said, actually, the second story is much better. The first one's really boring. You know, there are people that can write this kind of story, but for you, this particular way that you're writing the story, it just feels really flat. So that felt so liberating. And I think from then on, I was just really feeling like I could freely try. 
and I just felt really supported in that setting. So I think that, and I noticed at a certain point, I'd been sending out stories for years that actually it was a little bit easier to get published because those stories were more specific, they were more specifically my stories, so they kind of found their way into the world more easily. What was your first success as far as publication? I mean, it was right before then that I had a story in the Three Penny Review that was actually a uh, kind of strange story that's in the, my first book, The Girl in the Flammable Skirt. So then I thought, ah, oh, I got a which story. One, which one was it? Dreaming in Polish, which is um, the, well, it's this family, and the mom wants to walk to the Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C., and the dad is in bed, and the daughter, and there's a statue in the town. Anyway, <laughs> there's this <laughs> old couple, and they dream the same dreams, and then there's a statue, and then what is the statue? It's uncovered. But anyway, <laughs> that's about how I do plot summary. <laughs> See, I'll never, never go to Hollywood. I live in L.A., but, you know, that, that would be my pitch meeting. Okay. <laughs> well, so that's that, and then what do you think? <laughs> so basically, I thought, oh, I got that one published. Now it's going to be easy to get published, which was not at all true. Um, but but that was that was the beginning. Cool. What a, what about you, Sean? I know that you started with a novel. Yeah, yeah. I wrote um, actually nine of them before I ever published a word of anything. So really, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> <laughs> and to um, now, who was your your uh, the first publisher? It was. Uh, it was a tiny Canadian independent press based on Vancouver Island. All right, well, that one I know. Well, I'm trying to think of your first year. <laughs> Ace. 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 Okay. All right. So. And what book was that? That was? Uh, uh, it was called um, Passion Play. And okay. uh, the very first time I ever did a reading um, to speak to Amy's point about the things that, for better or worse, matter to our imaginations. Um, I was the child of an English prof in college. And so the very first time I did a reading, I went back to the uh, English department where I had taken my undergraduate degree and where I'd, my mom had taught. And so I had known all the professors since I watched them get slowly drunk in the faculty club when I was very small. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the reading, uh, my creative writing professor put up his hand and said, you know, Sean, most people think of science fiction as the sort of thing you grow out of. <laughs> Do you intend to keep writing it? <laughs> so what's your answer? I think what I said at the time was that... Um, no, I mean now. Actually, I, I still like the same answer at some level. Um, I, I don't think we get to choose these things. Um, I think that the things that kindle our imaginations do so. And, you know, as long as you're a Faulkner trying to write real books set in England, they suck. And sooner or later, you have to come back to your own, mm. you know, your, your own Mississippi, wherever that is. And, you know, unfortunately for me, my own Mississippi seems to have orcs in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. That's a great answer. I haven't heard that answer before, and I think it's really right. Uh, the Faulkner answer or Sean's answer? Sean's answer. About yeah. About that it's back. not really a choice. It's, it's presented as if. And it's you just write what you write. Yeah. I mean, uh, if it's real hard to wake up. And, I mean, just I had a friend who got a rejection letter um, at one point from the New Yorker that was um, pithily you write well, but so what? Wow. Um, and it speaks to the fact that, you know, if you're not John Updike writing John Updike stories, right. just because that's what real literature is, um, it would be great. It would be great to um, write things that were really respectable. And did I mention that my mother is an English professor? <laughs> so I feel the urge to be respectable all the time and somehow generally miss. Um, uh, but I think you have to do what, where, 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 it's, where it's alive. Just to jump in on that, because I really agree. And it's, 
I, there's a story I have in Willful Creatures about a big man and a little man, and the big man, um, it's just the sort of relationship between this big man that goes to the store and buys a little man. And so I was sending it around, and I got a rejection from a magazine, and they said, you know, nice story, but the the fact that they're a big man and a little man feels arbitrary, or the magic feels arbitrary, which I found so annoying because I felt like it, it, it seemed to imply that the story, a, a story had to be the two men that were the same size, <laughs> and, that would, and that I decided to fancy it up by making them one big man and one little man because I thought I would do a clever twist instead of feeling like that was the only way I knew how to tell the story, and I wanted to tell the story, and that's how it came out instead of... So, so I think there was something that felt really condescending about that comment that it just seems arbitrary, as if any piece of writing is not in that way arbitrary. Like, why is this character a woman? Why is this person wearing a blue shirt? So, so I think there is that. That's where it kind of shows up in ways that I I don't think makes sense. Interesting, but it struck me tonight with these two stories. They were both. Uh, they they contrast in an interesting way. It seems like like your job in that story was to to make as real a world as possible so that so that you could. Uh, do a take on you know that th you had to go to you had to have a real Vegas a real couple a real seven year itch a real yeah. you know it was all quite realistic yeah uh, which I found a little unusual for your work actually yeah. uh, but but for that story I thought it worked well at the same time it seemed like Sean's story was where he had to take materials that were given to him and mm -hmm. form a story uh, rather than take something out of his imagination and and figure out the way to present you had to take materials that were given to you and then make uh and the choices is what interested me i mean how do you like you say you want this elegiac 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 how do you say it? the tone you know so how do you how do you get that tone you had to make choices about who's telling the story and choices about why they're telling it and who they're telling it to which to me was the content of the story, you know, and I uh, um, thought it was an a interesting piece of work, and it just technically an interesting piece of work to, to humanize, as I said, it was like Dick Cheney or the one of, you know, one of the underlings in that, in that crowd. Um, the, well, that's all I want to say. Um, <laughs> Well, let me ask, let me ask a, a couple of other questions. What do you think, uh, what's, like, the, these books you're writing, the Kathy's book and the kids' books and stuff like that, now, wh how are they interactive in a way where people think of the story, or what, what's going on? Yeah, they have, they have various interactive elements. So the simplest, simplest example is each of the books has a phone number on the front cover. And if you dial the phone number on the front cover, you'll get the answering machine of one of the characters inside the book, and they yeah. will give you a little piece of the story that isn't inside the book, huh. um, or is, serves as it will for a trailer of the book. And all the phone numbers in the books work and are real, and all the websites mentioned in the books are out there, and you can go visit them. And there are also physical things inside the books. There's origami and birth certificates and, and a ring and a lucky Chinese coin on a silk thread. And yeah. so the, to step back a moment, um, where's, is there a guy with an, I was just talking to a guy with an iPhone, um, iPhone. So. Who else? Um, for him, right, it's just story. It's very arbitrary to say this is only text. This is only video. This is only a, a, a phone call. This is only email. Every single way that someone can lie is a way you can tell a story. And a device like that iPhone does not distinguish, is not based on the manufacturing platforms of the 19th century. The story is just going to come through all the different ways it wants to come through into that medium. So I think that. So that's what you meant when you said platform independent. Right. So okay. it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be a print book. It doesn't have to be a TV show. It doesn't have to be an epistolary story told in emails. It can be any and all of those things. And I think the next, my daughter's generation and her children are going to increasingly 
not understand why we should give a shit about these different leftover technology artifacts of old-fashioned manufacturing process. Give a shit? What are you, Trent Reznor? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But my, my, my daughter has, to the best of my knowledge, never seen a vinyl record, right? I don't think so. <laughs> wow. My children. I would like to thank you for making everyone in the audience, except for those, feel old. <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> if it weren't for a family vacation cottage, those, uh, they would never have dialed a phone. Do you remember when phones had dials? Um, that's an artifact that's just going away. Um, so. so what's your uh, uh, what's your what do they call the thing where everything changes? You know, um, tipping point. No, not the tipping point. You know, um, hmm? phase shift. Singularity. The singularity. There's the SF word. There we go. <laughs> so what do you think of the singularity? Does it happen? Is it going on now? Is this the, in one, the in narrative one, singularity? In, in one sense, it's the cell phone. I mean, when you have a cell phone that is portable and walks with you and has a GPS device and plays video and plays audio into your ears whenever, um, I mean, I, I really, really, really am the worst possible person to play Blue Bruce Sterling on TV. So <laughs> I don't want to, I am not a futurist. I just happen to work in the future. You'll be Gibson. Um, <laughs> you could but pull Gibson off. But if you are trying to think of what the, the art of the 21st century is going to be by thinking what would be a kick-ass way to tell a story that would work over an iPhone, that would probably be a good place mm -hmm. to start. And I happen to have a small example back home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. so what do you think? You're, you're, you come out of traditional literature, mm -hmm. in a sense, mm -hmm. get an MFA. Mm -hmm. You're working, but you're writing very untraditional stories, but in a very traditional framework. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that's shifting, or do you feel like you have to uh, um, run to keep up with it, or do you just? <coughs> I mean, I think it's, it's daunting in a certain way. I mean, things are changing so fast, and there's a book that I have not read yet, but I want to read about how the reading brain is changing to the internet brain, or just that there are synapses that start to shift. There are ways that we process information that are changing. I mean, it's a little bit amazing and terrifying, especially just because I feel so connected to the act of reading as being totally sacred in the way that it has been, but it is shifting. So I think, I mean, I don't really know I like the ideas of maybe doing more things online, but I also feel like I love sitting down. I, I love the act of the A to B story. I mean, I feel very attached to that, and I feel like I like messing within that. I'm changing that around as much as possible, but I feel very comforted by that, those bounds. Well, I can see a lot of your stories are like based on sequences, yeah, uh, yeah, rather than true. than plot points, you yeah. know. And and there's yeah. also a lot of number theory in your. Yeah. Did you ever study math? There's a lot of numbers in that novel you wrote. Yeah, I well the kind of confounded me. <laughs> it was, I was surprised too that I was writing this novel and I didn't know what it was going to be about, and then I become suddenly became obsessed with writing about numbers. So it, it, they, like, leapt their way in there, and then I got a couple books so that I could actually know some things about numbers, but it made me realize how much I like numbers, which I did not know. And then I, at the readings for that book, I would ask people what their favorite number was or what they felt about numbers, and everyone has a private relationship <laughs> to numbers that they usually don't tell. So like a married couple would come up and they know each other so well, and da, 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 and then they would reveal that one of them had this favorite number, and they, another one had this favorite number, and it was just very fun to see this exchange of information that maybe they had never told before. And my favorite story of it is one woman who set her alarm clock every morning to add up to seven. So it was not didn't have to be <laughs> seven oh oh but it had to be, you know, six ten or whatever it was. So so I think I loved this idea of um, you know, the kind of boxed in sense of order and also the superstitions because they feel like superstitions are sort of about order and sort of not at all about order. So 
And I think at that sense of numbers, yeah, then I'm more aware of it in my writing as being, like I'm interested in how something logically progresses, but it's not a logical thing. It's a right. feeling, or it's a strangeness of a world, or it's words that are solids, liquids, and gases, which feels like in that woman's store has a logical progression, but it's just not one that we're used to. Right. It does seem to me like a, a lot of times you use a sequential progression because it frees you to do everything else. Yes. And, you know, yeah. like, the, what's the story about the kid, all his fingers are keys, are for, you know, it's yeah. like the 12 nights of Christmas, you yeah. know, you, yeah. and there's a sequence in yeah. the story. No, and you're it, right. It, it does it. It's almost like a road novel in, in a mm -hmm. sense that, uh, you know, you can just mm -hmm. drive through your sequence and then you can add all the, the, character the, stuff, the yeah. magic and the stuff that makes the story happen, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, I guess, I'm like you, I, I have a, a, a bias toward um, linear narrative yeah. and, and, you know, and I know that Sean is... Uh, also does this very well, but it seems to me like you're trying to do something else now, which I sort of disapprove of. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is where, which is where the author relinquishes a certain amount of control. You know, it's like the fourth, as you say yourself, you break down the fourth wall. Absolutely. You know? And I, I, I wonder about that. I, I see it getting tried a lot of times. I, I rarely see it work. I thought it worked a lot in that story, but it was self-contained. Can I? I will speak that to that for a moment, if I may. All right, keep it short, though. <laughs> <laughs> no. well, I'm going to ask the same question. Nope. So years and years ago, I lived in Vancouver, and um, at the same time that William Gibson did, and every six months or so. Um, he would invite me over to his house and I'd go in and feel like super grateful. And he was really nice to me and I was like, you know, 23 or whatever. And one time I went over and he'd just been at a, there'd been a panel, this is in the early 90s. Um, and he'd been on a panel of kind of aspiring new technologies and narrative. And it was about hypertext. And hypertext was where it was all gonna go. And so they had a bunch of big people and then they had Gibson, because he lived in Vancouver, and he wrote Neuromancer, so you had to have him on the panel. So the first four people talked about how hypertext was going to revolutionize everything, and then the long silence, and then Bill said, well, as a writer, what I do is put words in a certain order, and I kind of hope they stay that way. <laughs> <laughs> Let me be the first to say... Um, you have to do that. If you're not better at telling stories than the audience, you know, shut up. <laughs> uh, aren't you paid to do that? And we, we go to Amy's town a lot and spend a lot of time pitching movie people and TV people. And they have the same idea that they pitch us very excitedly, which is we're gonna do a show, but the audience will choose the end. And usually, <laughs> well, I want to say, but find a different way of saying is, wouldn't that be great in like Macbeth? <laughs> wouldn't it be awesome if people could just vote on how that turned out? And wouldn't that make it better? And, you know, and generally we try to say very, you know, actually stories want to go a certain way. And for the story to be strong, hopefully you're going to shape it to a particular point and end because you have to have sequence um, in order to have build. But there are ways, uh, a lot of what I spend my working day doing is finding which parts I can surrender or engage or let an audience enrich while at the same time I'm going to get where I'm going to go. So if you think of jazz musicians playing, someone will start someone else will make a response, you respond to that response, and at the end of the day, you're gonna bring it back to C or wherever you're going. There is a way to build narratives um, in which an audience is invited in, but you're gonna go where you're gonna go because I don't think anybody's ever had any luck doing choose your own adventure novels. You know, right. That's well, just not a way that we serious tried fiction it, goes. It was tried in, in New York back in the 80s. I actually 
tried writing one, you know, huh. and the Choose Your Own Romance. Do people remember this at all? Yeah. Choose Your yeah. Own Romance, sure. Choose Your Own Adventure. Sure. And it, you know, for one thing, you have to write, to, uh, the tree gets too big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Real yeah. quick. Yeah. So it, it didn't work. And, you know, it's it's interesting I mean, what you're saying. I don't know it, it uh, how much of your story, I mean, in Amy's story, there's there's nothing she was, there was nothing in that story she was going to give up. No. You know. Uh, <laughs> And it actually wasn't in yours, but not but in that's, that not yeah. in that given piece. Right. And in a lot of them, um, you're controlling very carefully what you give up and yeah. what you don't. Right. But that story's not a, a fair example of what you're talking about. The overall thing, right? You know, it's a piece out of that. But um, yes, let's let's not get lost in the weeds. Um, I'll, I'll finish by saying something that Elon says. Um, Elon is my working partner. Um, Ilan's point, and he is not a novelist, he's a video game designer, okay? That's where he started. He was the original designer for the Xbox portfolio games. And he says flatly, look, nobody wants, the, the audience does not want to choose how the story goes because then it's not real. They want to know what really happened. And what really happened yeah. is what the author says really happened. Yeah. You can invite them in, they can help make it happen, but at the end of the day, they don't want to say what happened because then it's just fake. Mm. So um, yeah. if you think of what we're trying to do as not, you know, mob rule, but rather mm. a tango where we hold out our hand and ask mm. the audience, would you like to dance for a while? We're going to make this fun for you. And together we're going to do something, mm. but we're going to lead. Mm. And at the end of the dance, you will find that you have done something you didn't know you could do and have participated vividly in something you didn't realize you could participate in. But we're not going to start tangoing and then drop you on your ass and, and, or let you run screaming out the door or whatever. We're going we're gonna to make a dance. So, sorry, like fiction of theory of new media does not make for a very interesting topic. Sorry. It's interesting. It it's so does. interesting. Yeah. It's it's a, it, so to me, it's like... <laughs> it, used, it used to be much better. <laughs> my, my favorite single line was, um, well, other than having him still sleeping off the little bottles of scotch from the plane coming back from Singapore and describing it as like Disneyland with the death penalty. Um, uh, he came back from the Cannes Film Festival one year and uh, told, for some reason, Bill, is not like, it's not like if you or I went to the same place, we would have those experiences. He has completely different experiences than you would have, even standing in the same place. In the sa I mean, you, I don't know if you have this. But he was at Cannes, and he was talking to this guy for about 20 minutes, and he slowly realized that he was talking to a very successful Italian pornographer. And uh, the man says, so how have you found the fair? And Bill said, well, up to now it's been relatively benign. And the guy says, ah, my son, then as yet you have only touched the back of the fish. You have <laughs> yet to stroke its belly. <laughs> I'd never have that conversation. <laughs> it's like, dude, have you tried the little shrimp thingies? <laughs> You were yeah, what you were saying about this kind of new model of storytelling reminded me of an interview I heard on NPR a couple weeks ago about Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. And I'm wondering if you see any parallels to that. Like, maybe you're the dungeon master and your readers, so to speak, are the other players. It's absolutely the case. Um, when I, the first time I, although, um, I didn't start out in science fiction writing for Gary Gygax. Um, and so it's not something that anyone knew about me. But in fact, when I got the first call to do one of these projects, uh, I got a call from a guy named Jordan Weissman, uh, who was then working at Microsoft and who owned before that something called FASA, which is a role-playing game company. Um, and about uh, 15 minutes through this interview, he said, by any chance, would you happen to know what a 
role-playing game is? <laughs> and I said, and it is painful to say this in a room full of adults, I said, if you're looking for someone who played Empires of the Petal Throne with the RuneQuest damage tables, that would be me. <laughs> so, so I was one of those kids, in fact, who, you know, played 30 different RPGs and designed rules for five or six of our own. And uh, one of Jordan's early lines about the beast is, it's just like playing a tabletop game of Dungeons and Dragons with three million of your closest friends. And it is absolutely the same kind of storytelling as... And $20 million, right? <coughs> we didn't have 20. Um, <laughs> We spent a lot, though, since um, on that first one, Microsoft, it was run as a black op out of Microsoft, so Microsoft didn't even know we were doing it. Wow. And honestly, we just spent money and worried about paying for it later. So it was really fun and will never happen again for that reason. <laughs> Please. Um, I was actually influenced for interactive art and technology when the beast happened. Oh. So ah. it was, and it was as uh, groundbreaking Like you said, one of the most unfortunate things is it's never going to happen again because you had such freedom on that project. That uh, most people don't have any chance and to do that. It's it's not just a matter of uh, besides the freedom because um, we've actually we've had budget subsequently. I've been very lucky, so I've gotten to work on every project with a reasonable budget except for Art of the Heist. Um, sorry for everybody else who doesn't know the field. But um, one of the other things that happened there is, and you know this if you followed it at all, is that we built out the content and the story arcs to cover about nine months of story. Mm -hmm. And um, the players had worked out all of them in four days. Wow. So yeah. it was now Elon and I tap dancing for the next five months working 20-hour days. Yeah. And besides having, in some senses, the kind of resources that we had in terms of an art team and whatnot, you can't willingly sign up for that. You can't, no one, what no one will else will have is a moment where uh, it's, uh, it's Friday afternoon, um, we have an episode of content that has to come out Tuesday morning. The thing that was supposed to run there isn't built yet one of the players noticed, uh, the players seemed to really like this little sound loop with this guy in it saying, hacked and cracked by Red King. So Sean, write some fucking thing about the Red King and make it like really good. Okay. <laughs> and uh, let's do, you know what would be fun? Let's call people on their phones, but we'll make it a robot from the 21st century. And uh, we got to fill up some more space. Let's build a puzzle out of uh, the Enigma simulator at Berkeley will build an Enigma machine puzzle and we need three more things and then we're good for Tuesday morning, right? Because you can't sign up for that. You know, it just, no one, no one can work those. I, I say this, I, I shouldn't go on at length. It's very difficult to sell a client. We're going to start out and then for five months, we're just going to be real smart. <laughs> It'll be awesome. It's what? It's working from the character out. I mean, in mm -hmm. some ways, I don't know your process, but it's a, the characters in your, your book are much deeper than many genre novels. Thank and you. I wonder if you, you, you find that the same working in new media, or what, what are those things you have to change? The, um, is it okay if I do this one and then I'll shut up? Um, yeah, there's a, okay, so again, Sorry for everybody else here. Um, there's a, a watchword for that project, which became one in the early years of the development of what's called alternate reality games. One of our in-house slogans was, this is not a game. Mm -hmm. And that had a double meaning. 
in one sense it meant that the game would never admit at any point that it was a game. It would present itself mm -hmm. as if it was completely real. So mm -hmm. you could view the source code on all the sites and the source code on all the sites would claim to have also been built in 2152. There was no, we, we went to a lot of trouble to make it as faux real as possible while knowing that it wasn't going to be taken as real in another conversation. But the second thing about this is not a game is the first person who ever said that was actually me. And what I meant by it is, let's not have the level of characterization you have in Donkey Kong. Um, You're going down or up? <laughs> I, was, I, I was hoping we could jump that little barrel. Um, uh, so about a week and a half in, um, it is the, nat the, the way the beast is built for those who skipped the introductory class um, was essentially you'd have some kind of puzzle and then it would unlock some narrative. So you'd find somebody's website, it would be password protected, you'd have to learn what you knew about the character to figure out the password to unlock the next part of the site. Mm -hmm. So that was the mechanism, that was what made it interactive and that's an example of interactivity that doesn't change mm -hmm. what you're gonna get but nonetheless allows people to feel that they are discovering and making the narrative. Mm -hmm. So people got really interested in all the puzzles and um, about a week and a half in, I said, okay, enough with the puzzles already. I want people to care. I want them to bleed and cry and laugh and care about these people. It's, I don't want this to be a game. I want this to be as real as movies or books are real in terms of the people. So um, sometimes uh, I get to do that. But, um, and there, there's uh, both, uh, uh, a really good thing that comes out, a really good opportunity and some limitations. One is, I don't have a lot of space. The attention span of the internet is like, I don't know, 4.3 seconds. So you can't write, you know, every now and then I hire people that I know from science fiction to write stuff for me and they, I'll say, it has to be 500 words long and they'll turn in something that's 3,000 words long. And I say, you just cannot put a website with 3,000 words on it because no one will read that. So it's hard to write the kind of depth that you just can't do Henry James on the net. The flip side is one of the things that's really cool about working when formally it looks really odd is you get to hold the stories, you almost have to hold the stories to be very recognizable, right? Or else the whole thing would just be static on the TV. So this is a long way of saying the stories I get to write are boy meets girl in a way that if you try to write that story for the New Yorker, you know, you're screwed because, my God, we've seen every possible variation, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But because the, the, the engine surrounding it is so novel, in some senses, I get to tell the most straight down the heart stories that you can tell in a way that's actually really liberating because I get to tell really old, very basic Greek myth kind of stories, but they're in they feel very fresh and new, and because people are engaged and discovering them and part of them, they, they, last thing about this. When a novel comes out, if something goes really well, um, a year after it comes out, there's maybe a nice review in, in the Times. At the end of these games, I get invited to weddings because people meet and marry because wow. it's so intense, and then they feel such a connection to wow. it that I get invited to the wedding. So, you know. Do you go? <laughs> Uh, I've gone to one. One was in England, and that's, you know, yeah. long way. So what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. You're thinking. I mean, I was just thinking about the, the wedding, what it would be like to be at the wedding of that. I mean, it's so different. It's really different. So I don't have a coherent well, form thought. You know thought. what struck me? It, it is yeah, and it is. Well, it's not to <laughs> not, you know, no. I'm not trying to create a... a a disagreement between us, because I I, I I hear what you're saying, and I think it's fair. I mean, to me, this whole thing about the beast—it's like I feel like I'm in the Truman Show. Like there was all this yeah. stuff going on, I had no idea. You know, mm -hmm. there was this whole world that I had no concept of. And uh, at lunch, we were talking. I was, or when we were having dinner uh, before you guys got there, actually, we were talking about. Uh, I just wrote something about the Left Behind books. Do you know what they are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and we were just talking about the fact that people in publishing generally don't even know they exist. Yeah, and they sell the more than anything. Right, right, they're the biggest selling fantasy series, and uh, they're bigger than Lord of the Rings. Mm 
but nobody knows that they exist. And I feel religious, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, about the rapture. rapture. But I feel the same way. I feel like this whole thing was going on. I had no idea that it existed. At the same time, you're talking about cranking out those stories. I'm thinking of a wonderful short story by Irwin Shaw in the New Yorker. I've forgotten the title of it, where he's talking about uh, writing radio serials. And basically, they'd have a meeting, and what are we going to do tomorrow? You know, they got to fill 15 minutes yeah. every day. Yeah. And and the serial actually goes all the way back, as you say, goes back to, uh, Dan, uh, to you know, certainly to Dickens, but way, way mm-hmm. back past that. And the other thing about pretending it's real, of course, that's always been there from Defoe. You know, Absolutely. from the very yeah. beginning, the source of the novel is in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, pretending like it's real and even today you know mm-hmm. based on a real story the the editor at uh, Berkeley that that bought that through the fence thing that just right got, right as a, mm-hmm. is somebody that I worked with at Berkeley you know mm-hmm. so and and I remember asking somebody how can people get fooled so much and uh, editor in New York said you have to realize that a memoir in today's market is worth three times as much as a piece of fiction which is a whole other story mm-hmm. but, you mm-hmm. know so that's sort of what I was thinking about. Just it's not that it's the same thing, but there's certain things oh, in, ab- in yeah, sure. absolutely in literature that come up over and over. And and in a sense, remember Gardner's whole thing about the uh, the fictional dream that yeah. you enter. Yeah, you know, in a sense, it's all role playing game. Yeah, you know? no, it is. It you is. Are one one of the right. things one of the things that Alan always s- says is um, when we're working on these things, we don't generally do interviews, and the first mini games were anonymous. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, when you open a book, there's a set of rules for how you read a book, and it says the fiction is contained between the first cover and the back cover. Right. Since we are asking you to pull the the a very gossamer thin sheet of fiction all the way into your life, mm-hmm. like putting a coverlet on a feverish child mm-hmm. um, or, or a, a little soap bubble. If you had, if at the bottom of every page of an Agatha Christie novel, it said, by Agatha Christie, this is just a book. <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd keep losing Poirot, right? Because you need to stay in that world. And Elan's point was always, if we're out doing interviews saying, hey, we're doing this thing, isn't it awesome? <laughs> then you risk running the risk that someone feels like a sucker you know and you don't want them to feel that you want you want them to be able to be um, inside that little soap bubble of fiction Mm -hmm. right the other thing in terms of the nothing new is when my mom asked what is this (laughs) what is this thing that you do Um, (laughs) I said uh, well um, one half of it is it basically it's just 1850. <laughs> it's Charles Dickens writing serials mm. and attached to 19th century science, but this time for entertainment. Mm. <laughs> but it's the same bunch of amateurs mm. investigating stuff and passing information around. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of just the French lieutenant's woman, really, mm. only with more robots from the future. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Karen?
the what stories? The choose your own, choose your own adventure. Oh, those. Yeah. sort of walking its walk, it's science fiction walking its walk a little bit by pushing on the forms while it's doing it. And, it, you know, and I wish I could remember my news source, but I, at some point, um, remember hearing something about how what we're in now is just the fastest, the digital revolution being the fastest changing of the human, you know, clock so far. And that makes sense to me that it's that just in terms of how much we're getting new technology at what rate. Uh, you know, is has never happened at this rate, and it, it you know it feels true when it's like you have never seen a vinyl record. And Maybe it's that's her oh, fault, right? But it's, there's not that much time, right, between all of our ages. But it, there was vinyl, and then there was cassette, and then cassette is now like you know worse than vinyl, really. Cassette feels the most, um, uh, you know, has lost into. The, the ether and then CD now is, you know, on the way out. And so that's, you know, just the, the speed is intense. The punky looking dude that looks like a bouncer. <laughs> 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 well, in keeping with this, this idea of speeding up, I mean, how much of the traditions of science fiction are vinyl records? I mean, when did Disneyland Tomorrowland stop being about the future right. and start being about the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a retro. How much of the, the traditions of the current genre of science fiction are vinyl records? Yeah. Well, relevant? I mean, that's a great I, you, you, do, you, do you know Clute's answer on this? Right? What? No, what's John, the answer? Um, John, John Clute, the. Can you say it in English? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try. <laughs> um, Clute's a very good. Uh, uh, John John Clute's uh, uh, so he's he's an incredibly smart critic. An, a science fiction writer I will not name recommended that I send my first novel to him so that it would quotes enter the chilly edifice of the Clute brain. <laughs> <laughs> so that may give you an idea, Amy. For so. Um, at the turn of the millennium, um, John, who is incidentally, in my experience anyway, a prince of a guy, despite the somewhat. There's no way I can come out of that sentence on top, so I'm going to abandon it. Um, but he made a really interesting point, which um, he he was trying out the the thesis that science fiction is dead, um, uh, but with a more than usually sound basis. And his argument is that science fiction, fantasy, and horror are um, essentially all uh, responses to the Industrial Revolution. Mm. And there are three answers. Mm. Uh, no, seriously, this is going to be great. Oh, my God, this <laughs> is a terrible mistake. And, you know, it doesn't really matter because the evil's inside us. <laughs> <laughs> and loosely speaking, between Frankenstein, Dracula, and, you know, H.G. Uh, Wells and the rest of it. Loosely speaking, these are all responses to the Industrial Revolution. And his argument is that um, science fiction is dead in the sense that that revolution is now done. And we're in the midst of a new revolution, and a literature will arise, and bits and pieces of science fiction will be taken from it. And there will be writers who used to write SF who will write a response to this age. But the literature of that the literature of the coming revolution is necessarily going to be different. And I think that's very astute because Clute yeah. is a real, uh, he's a serious dude. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, the roots of what we think of as traditional science fiction are in Romanticism and Modernism. And Absolutely. not in, yeah. and that's why, that's I mean, to yeah. describe Amy as, as a uh, 
a conventional writer is kind of weird. I mean, you're I, you Andy know, to me is a is a, you really are a postmodern writer, right. and most science fiction writers and, are actually not. And and that's one of the odd things about this conversation. Just to say it is that you're a much more experimental writer than I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's odd for me to be here. Right. On right, this side of the experimentation. Right. Yeah. Because right. and and anyone, I mean, if you ask Jacob or anyone who actually read any of my books to name five science fiction, the five science fiction like writers least likely to be involved in computer fiction, mm -hmm. I would probably have been real high on that list. Mm -hmm. Or the piece you read. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was a very conventional piece. It could have right. been uh, sororium, you know, to right. me. It, it, it was in that mode, which it was meant to be, you know, and, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I heard that as saurian, as in from the Mesozoic period. <laughs> no, no, no. It's entirely as plasticine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and a, uh, I, w I love the story you read, but a lot of Amy's stories also are very uh, modernist in, uh, postmodern in style as well as mm -hmm. content. And, and that one actually wasn't, I didn't think. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you can out Hemingway, Hemingway. She, she can do more with a long string of little bitty words than, than anything, anybody since the old man. <laughs> that, uh, and, and that's, that's the kind of, you know, I was thinking that a lot of your work, I think one of the rules when I was teaching science fiction, mm -hmm. uh, one of my rules or one of my tenets was always that science fiction writing has to be conventional because you're, you're not, you're trying to present, you're trying to present, un, yeah, you're trying to present an unconventional yeah. idea yeah. and stuff. And that's not true of your work. And I think that, that you do more interesting things with language than structurally uh, like I'm about doing, you know, or science right. fiction writers are about. So I, I, I was just thinking, uh, it, so it's odd to, to, to hear you described as a conventional right. writer, but right. you do come out of, um, I don't know, <laughs> modern, uh, postmodern literature. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Cliff. So, uh, you're mumbling. The panelists have uh, independently talked a little bit about the nature of uh, reading in the human brain and the future. And uh, there seems to me an undercurrent in the comments about the changing brain and the comments about, well, you can't do this on a website. You only can do 500 words. Uh, that we are losing, potentially, uh, something of value, which is, which is depth characterization and poignancy that can come only with uh, a full-length novel, not even with a movie, um, and that uh, maybe all of this other stuff that's going to happen in the future and the kind of modes of fiction telling and the kinds of brains that will be consuming stories in the future are incapable of reaching this, you know, sublime depth that the past tradition has uh, made possible. There seems to me to be that kind of an I mean, I think it's a—it's always a worry when because I think that's been as things have speeded up over the last couple centuries, then century and a half. Then um, I think that has always been the concern about attention span, about you know what was the movie going to do to the book, what was in each in that w in that way. But what I'll say, but I do still feel a worry about that. Um, and this would be my example, is I noticed last semester in teaching a new phenomenon, which was the previously cell phones in class, the cell phone would occasionally ring. No big deal. They look, they turn it off, fine. But texting <laughs> has become so different now. And so I had in my fall semester a couple of students who were just in the middle of the class. They just couldn't help but pick up their phone to read the text and then even start texting back, which I thought was incredibly rude. So, so it led to this semester me having a whole texting speech. But so I'll give you the shorthand of my texting speech because I think it's related, which is that if, if we're jumping around more, just in our thinking, we're just jumping around more, then I feel like there's a little bit of the spaciness that I think is a valuable aspect of reading a novel, which is you drift off for a while, and then you come back to the steadiness of that page. But you don't fulfill that drifting off by putting something new in there. 
So what I think the texting in my class, so I was saying to the class, look, sometimes you're going to space out in class. It's not like I expect you to be absolutely present for the entire class. But I'm kind of interested in what happens when you space out, and I don't want you to plug that spacing out by picking up your phone and looking at the text. Besides that, it's distracting and rude in a classroom, right? So that's, that. there's an etiquette part, but I think there's also a learning part. And so I think it just becomes so second nature to pick it up. And I know that I've done this thing where, you know, I think you guys have probably done this too, where you're on your phone and then you start checking for your phone. So I have my phone and then you realize, oh, I'm on the phone. It's like the new sunglass <laughs> thing. Right, it's the new thing of that, but it's somehow like the shape has just become this thing to look for. So, so I say that because I think that's my concern with just um, the way maybe the, that potential changing of thinking is that we move around quicker and more laterally as opposed to going through the book. And so, and so the thing that I worry about is that kind of um, the value of the spacing out and the value of going back and then going through. Which, was who was in the back? Was it yeah. I just wanted to sort of suggest that uh, I don't think you need a full-length book or a novel to have one meeting and ladder, please. Your character development. Sure. Because I think there's that uh, piece of Hazard and Bill's uh, Hard that he did in the mail poems. Right. That are very short and have a lot of poignancy and yeah. and emotional heights and sublime. So I don't really think that uh, you would necessarily lose anything by uh, looking for something short. You know, a haiku can Right, that'll be the surprise. Poetry well, will have a resurgence. I thought that was a good point because I was, yeah. you know, I, I also felt that when Cliff said that, I felt like there's, there's as much depth of characterization in any one of Salinger's nine stories for yeah. me as there is in, in a Henry James novel. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not that there's not other stuff going on in a novel, but I don't think novels are all about characterization. Uh, yeah, Rena. No, they they definitely seem yeah they they love the books and I think they it doesn't feel like they're fulfilling a requirement I definitely think there's still a strong interest and in fact it felt like there was kind of a resurgence about five or ten you know maybe five years ago where suddenly the students seemed really um, like I think Dave Eggers and the McSweeney's crew did, did a whole bunch to sort of tapping into the idea of publishing in a new way and the look of books in a new way and I think that created a lot of excitement and energy so so I think that. Yeah, I feel like they are excited about it. And I think they're excited about doing all sorts of multimedia stuff, too, and pushing and form and finding stuff with the internet. And I have one exercise while I have the students do a midterm where they'll do writing plus one other medium. And sometimes they do their best work with that, too. Um, and occasionally someone will give me something on the web, and that's it's actually really great to see. So that's mine. I mean, I, I'm not a good example <laughs> of that, because I, I, at Clarion, you have people that want to uh, you know, write science fiction, yeah. and um, why, I don't know. Cliff. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that it wasn't my thesis, but only this book novel. <laughs> <laughs> but it was you that put it forward. But it was, it was me that put it forward, right. but, but I was pointing out that it seemed like the bias of the panel, and I was anxious to say mm. I still think. One of the one of the things one book from the One of the things that um, yes. Yeah. One of the things that you get in War and Peace, which is an odd example because I've been reading it at night to my other daughter since last April, and we're just cross page nine hundred. Um, 
there's there's a very Before. simple, almost <laughs> mechanical effect, right? Which is you spend a long time yeah. in that world. One of the things that was odd about the Beast is we got people for 30 hours a week for five months. Not all of them did 30 hours a week. In fact, pray, pray God, most did not. But we got very significant mind share at an unfathomable length of time. It was like watching the original Napoleon every day for five months. You know, you know a lot about Napoleon. So, uh, yeah, there's stuff that you can do in a novel that you can, I mean, mm -hmm. there's no way that any haiku gives you what The Lord of the Rings gave me when I was a kid, mm -hmm. which is day after day after day after day of not being in Duncanville, Texas. <laughs> um, in a way that was, you know, felt really important. Um, uh, as for the other thing, I, I don't think that novels are going away. I just think to use these merciless terms, uh, their market share will gradually shrink as it has gradually shrunk from 1850 when it was the only game in town, yeah. along with the occasional play. Um, you know, movies have a slice and TV has a slice and yeah. whatever happens on the internet will have a slice. Yeah. Um, I don't think it will go away, at least for a little while. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you have to look at... Um, my daughter went to La Boheme earlier this year and loved it. But let's face it, opera does not have the cultural centrality it once had, and it's not gonna. If you wanna be a poet and you want a lot of people to care about it, you better learn to play the electric guitar. Yeah. Even that's the, over with. The, the moving finger writes and having writ moves on. And, you know, I, I am suspicious of all form forms of the argument, kids these days, <laughs> followed by a scowl. Right. Um, my personal experience is that, I, I can say this because I am a prototype Gen Xer, kids these days are smarter, nicer, better connected, mm -hmm. care more. There's just no comparison between my crappy lot and the, <laughs> the kids, the soccer players I coach mm -hmm. and things like that. They're just, just smarter, better, better connected, they leverage their advantages better. They're just better. <laughs> so um, don't worry about them too much. Last really fast story about, because it's we're right on a break point for me. Um, the guy uh, mentioned a couple times, Elon is 10 years younger than I am. Uh, and he was one of those hacker kids who was like breaking down into the FBI when he was 13 and like that and has become slightly, but only slightly more socialized. Um, no, he's actually, he teaches swing dancing, so he's a man of parts. But he asked me a question in the middle of the beast, he comes to me and he says, uh, you have to understand that this is a hacker that I had to tell him who Alan Turing was. Okay, so if that gives you numbers, a little context. So he comes to me one day and he says, have you ever heard of something called an Enigma machine? I said, Enigma. And yes, I've heard of an Enigma <laughs> machine. I said pompously and explained it was a German code, uh, code-making device, and that the Allies cracked it with a code book, and that Alan Turing had built a bomb to help decode it and all that sort of thing. And he listened to me for a long time, as he does. Uh, and he said, that's so cool. Did you know there's a simulator at Berkeley and I can run it? <laughs> Note to self. <laughs> about the pompous thing. Because <laughs> I'm from the last generation which had this model of there is stuff to be known, go out and learn that stuff and then you will know it. <laughs> and Elon is at the edge of the generation which says, lots of shit out there and if I need it, I'll go find it. Right, right, pick and choose. Right, Google it up. Yeah. One or two more comments and then we should Google it down. Oh, Rick. <laughs> You guys have been talking about how different your forms are, but actually I think there's a lot of similarities in that in the way Amy works within just text in mixing up stuff and pulling apart the world in really imaginative ways and putting it back together in ways that you can connect with in the story. Uh, I think Sean's doing the same thing with technology. It, it, mm -hmm. So he, she's working in a, in a within text, he's working within technology, but they're still pulling apart basic stories and putting them together in ways that are unique and novel and really grab readers. 
And uh, but I will say that you, I think, no matter how far things go on the technological side, mm -hmm. I think that the you'll always be able to keep pace on the tech side. With I mean, there'll be you know the kids that Amy's teaching now mm -hmm. will come up with something that makes her stuff look really like I love Lucy to me. Right. 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 What I say to my colleagues is the alphabet never crashes. <laughs> <laughs> I never come into work, I do my part, and no one ever says, oh my god, the F won't work. <laughs> well, I was going to have the last word, but I can't beat that, so let's close it out. Thank you, Amy Bender. Thank you, Sean Stewart. Thank you all for coming. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.